Good day, dear listeners. Steve Breda here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And my guest today is Julian Chapman, the president of Forest and Company, an organizational effectiveness firm, and the author of The Managerial Leadership Journey and Unconventional Business Pursuit. Julian, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Steve. I really appreciate this. Of course. So Julian, we had the chat before and you told me your background, you have a military background and in the Canadian military, and then you ended up leading a management consulting firm. I was just wondering, how does that happen? Well, it's it's interesting you say that. So in our military, we have our regular force, and then we have our reserve force. So a lot of my career was reserve service. So as I like to say, I had a foot in the canoe and a foot on land. So in other words, I was in the management consulting business while I was still serving in the Army. Mm-hmm. And that's where I sort of brought the two, the two worlds together from that standpoint. So it's a matter of being able to identify how business works and how the military works. And I spent a lot of time training leaders in the Canadian military. So it was a natural progression for me to get into the managerial leadership development piece. Okay, so I'm really curious about that because there are many authors like Joko Willing is one of them who talks about the military and how it helps people equipped to be great leaders, discipline and the culture and the accountability and all that stuff. However, what I'm curious about is what are the differences between leadership in the military and in business? Well, I think there's a core element that is around, it's around the aspect of in the military, uh, you're training people for war presumably, although there are many different facets to that, whether it's peacekeeping or domestic emergencies and the likes. And so there is that element that you're always focused on taking care of your people. And that's what I've tried to bring to the to the business world as well, because there isn't necessarily that element of taking care of your people. There's very much an element of, okay, we've got to make money and we've got to grow things. Of course, the military is very good at spending money, but not necessarily about making money. So that's another element that's uh, that's different. But it's that aspect of really the focus on you're not only as good as your team kind of thing uh, in the military that that needs to be in, injected into business because business is really about human beings. It's about bringing human beings and bringing them along and, and leading them on a journey. So that's that's what I've brought over from the uh, from the difference, uh, I believe, at any rate. Um, I'm asking this because some of my clients, uh, I used to be a peer group facilitator and I would bring in speakers and we had a couple of speakers who had military backgrounds. And then one of my clients said, uh, one of the members of the group said that, Steve, you have to stop bringing these military people because I'm sick of hearing about leadership in the military. It's not relevant uh, in some ways. So I'm wondering, what is your thought? What is it that is not applicable that you learned in, in terms of leadership in the military for a civilian business life? Well, well, as I said, I, I think it's that you expand all rounds in the military. In other words, you're spending money. You're not looking at ways uh, to make money. And I think that that is a, a fundamental piece of it all, that the, the difference is there. And I think the other part is, is that the military speaks a different language than business. And quite often, the language of the military can get misconstrued. Now, by the same token, many of the constructs in business, whether it was empowerment years ago 
or, uh, or the notions of continuous improvement actually come from the military. And so a lot of business, particularly in the United States, has been infused with that military background. But it is the danger of you're speaking a completely different language. It feels like it's very different. And as a result, then people have a hard time you know, seeing where it's, seeing the relevance because it can be such a different language and a different approach. Can leadership be empowering in the military? Absolutely. And uh, in my book, I talk about the, the notion of where those ideas of empowerment actually came from. And it's about the lessons learned. There's a big culture of lessons learned in the military that can help business because they do spend a lot of time. And I guess this is actually a good point as well about the differences. They spend a lot of time planning and they spend a lot of time arguably nasal, navel gazing in a sense of what went wrong and what can we do differently. Mm-hmm. And business just has to do a bit more of that, not go heel over and spend all their time uh, doing planning and what the military refers to as the after action review, which mm-hmm. is what went wrong and how can we make it better type of thing. But uh, so I think that there's a bit that needs to come over, but not to consume the energy of an organization, you know, merciless planning that goes on and on and on. And that is a big piece of the military is is that they're always planning. But I think business needs to do a bit more planning, but not go over to that extreme. Yeah. Okay, got it. So talking about uh, leadership and management, you have developed a framework, which maybe is called leading leaders and managing managers. So what do you mean by this phrase? And what does that framework uh, tell us well one of the things that that I've tried to uh, tried to focus on and one of the things that we focus on at Forresting Company is the nature of managing managers and leading leaders as opposed to of the vast majority of business books that are out there that talk about leadership talk about leading your team but when you're talking about leading leaders it's a different set of skills that you need to be leading them with and just as managing is a different set as well. And so we often just talk about this, this piece of get out and lead your team, but what does that actually look like? So my book is really designed for the manager of managers. So in other words, uh, sort of the, not the frontline manager who's dealing with direct reports, but the, the individual who is going to be leading a team of leaders. And what I mean by leaders is managerial leaders. One of the things that uh, that I talk about as well is, is that the word leadership and leader has been used for all sorts of different things. I'm trying to be very specific that it's about managerial leadership because we talk about, you know, we talk about great golfers who are leaders in golfing. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the nature of managerial leadership. And that the two are interwoven, that you can't be a great leader without having management skills. And just as you can't be an effective manager without leadership skills, that it's not two separate things, and that management isn't a bad word and leadership is the be all and the end all. It's that you have to bring those two sides together. It's the notion of bringing task and people together, management of task and the leading of people. And you have to bring those together. And we don't do that particularly well in business. We get terrific taskmasters who are managers who don't really care about their people. And then you get great leaders who care lots about their people, but they don't set up the systems to enable the people to flourish underneath. Now, you spoke also earlier about the elements of each. So so we talked about management, which is creating the, the clarity, the authority and engagement. And then leadership was authentic 
servant and transformative. Could you talk to these ideas and what each of them represent? One of the things about the management side is, is that we don't really spend enough time clarifying what the work is for our people. Uh, one of the things for managers of managers is, is that they don't spend enough time clarifying what are the expectations of, as managers. We tend to get focused on our technical know-how and we focus solely on our technical know-how. But when you're in an organization that has people, you have to be doing the things and setting up the work. So defining what people are accountable for and then defining what authority they need in order to be able to get that done. So much of the work occurs laterally in organizations as opposed to into the stovepipe piece. And organizations don't spend enough time clarifying what is the authority. If I need to get service from someone else or I need to be able to say, hey, you can't do that over there, those things have to be defined. And we don't spend the time to do that. We just leave it to people to try and work it out. I talk about an issue in the book about what's known as sanctuary trauma. And it comes from the first responder world. And the idea is, is that first responders, so fire ambulance, They see trauma all day long. Sanctuary trauma is when they come back into the workplace that is supposed to be their sanctuary, but they find that they're suffering trauma because they can't get their work done. They're not sure what their expectations are. And in fact, that adds more trauma to them. 50% of first responders feel sanctuary trauma, let alone the trauma of what they see in their day-to-day work. And it's because there is no framework. There's, we haven't set up the management. So that's the side of managing managers. And then the leadership side of being an enlightened leader is about being authentic, servant, and transformation. And that's the skills that the, the leader of leaders has to pull out of their leaders and ground them in being authentic, being servant, and being transformation. Okay. So management is all about clarity. So creating clarity of expectations giving the authority to the people who need to make the decisions. And then you also talked about engagement, which I guess is just keeping the people engaged in the whole process so that they don't disengage, they uh, you know, they stay connected, they keep doing this thing, right? Exactly. And then, and then the leadership, you talk about authentic, which I get, servant and transformative. So I'd like to dig into these latter two words because servant leadership is becoming a cliche in some circles. I don't really understand what it is. I'd love some clarity on it. Could you elaborate? What does it mean, servant leader? Does it mean that the leader has to be very humble and has to lead from behind? Or what does that even look like? What it looks like is the recognition that as a manager, I'm accountable for the output and working behaviors of my team. So I have to take care of that team. I refer to it as the the golden rule of leadership, know your people and promote their welfare. So don't put them into situations that are going to be difficult for them. You need to know their capability. And where the servant leadership comes from is not from sitting behind or anything like that, but, but actually engaging with them and being empathetic with them and making connections with them. It's about really taking that to heart, but it is about recognizing that I can't win I can't be successful if my people are not successful. And so I have to remove the barriers to their success, remove the interferences that get in the way of their potential. Business, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just, uh, I was just thinking about, a lot of people say that the greatest leader of the 20th century was Winston Churchill. 
And I was wondering, would you characterize him as a servant leader? I suppose I would. I mean, servant leaders still have to make tough calls. They still have to make very tough decisions. They can't, and then they have to balance that task and people. And there's lots of examples in Winston Churchill's life and during the Second World War where he made those calls for what he believed was the greater good and what probably was the greater good. Otherwise, we wouldn't be where we are today. But I would suggest that he did take that into account. He was certainly transformational. I would say that he's probably more transformational than necessarily servant. Whether you take his speeches in the House of Commons during the war as being transformational, as inspiring life into the British people in the darkest hour or the, or the empire and the Commonwealth at the time. No, yeah. In the darkest hour, that's the transformational side. So I'd say probably more transformational than necessarily servant. But he also grew up in the military. So, uh, you know, he, he did his, his, as a South as Africa. officer. Yeah. So. OK, the servant leader, I understand. Transformational. So let's talk a little bit more about transformation. So obviously Churchill was transformational, the way he spoke, he inspired people. So is it all about inspiration to be transformational or there are other aspects to it? Well, I think at the core of transformational is having a vision as to what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So we teach our leaders that they need to be able to tell their story. Who am I, which is the authentic piece? Why am I here, which is the servant piece? And what am I trying to build, which is a transformational piece? So who am I, why am I here, and what am I trying to build? And so there is an element of vision to it, but it's also the recognition that nobody comes into the workplace fully formed. There isn't the perfect employee, the unicorn, or as we say in, the, in, in Canada, the narwhal, the, that perfect individual. I have to recognize that my job is to transform them into those great the, the great employees that I'm looking for and that they don't immediately come like that. And all too often, we're anchored by our technical know-how and we forget that when we move up in the organization, it's about that management of tasks and that leading of people. It's not about my technical know-how. It's not about my ability to read spreadsheets or those sort of things. I have to be pushing that and delegating as much as possible down to my people and recognizing that I have a mindset of transforming them, helping them grow and, and to flourish in the, in the workplace. That's a, great, that's a great way to express it. Actually, in your book, you have this triangle, which has technical knowledge at the bottom, and then you have leadership and management. And I'm thinking about you know, one of the entrepreneurial authors who was sort of the first one to kind of draw attention to this multifaceted nature of the job, Michael Gerber, who said that most people who start businesses are actually technicians and they need to become managers and then they need to become entrepreneurs. And it's, these functions need to be filled and you have to do less of the technical and more of the managerial, eventually the visionary work, the leadership work, the entrepreneurship. So that's fascinating. So uh, it's a good segue to talk about Forest and Company because you are um, an organizational effectiveness firm, management consulting firm. You help uh, companies to, to transform their leadership, their management, their organizations. And what I'm wondering about is what is it that do differently from some of the productized frameworks, such as EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System, which also talks about the vision and the execution and the team health and you know how to mold an organization to a better organization. Presumably, you do this at a higher level and I'd be curious as to 
what is it that you do that is more sophisticated or higher level or more uh, advanced than these cookie cutter approaches? I think it comes from where we came from. So started off as a leadership development firm. So training, coaching, that sort of thing. And then the realization that all of that training and coaching, you, you puff people up and you get them going and, and then they run smack into a wall inside the organization. And those are the systemic issues that are in the way of the organization. I talk about this as organizational pain. And so we try to focus on managerial accountability. What are managers truly accountable for? And that the role of managerial leaders in an organization is critical. So we look at the lens of organizational health through the lens of managerial leadership and that what are the systems that need to be put in place. So it's kind of a different approach. EOS, as I understand it, is, uh, you know, is certainly for the entrepreneur that's, uh, you know, this in kind of startup mode. Ours is much more further along, but the, the principles are still the same for, for larger firms. Because when I'm talking about managers of managers and managers and, and managerial leadership, I'm talking about sort of the third level. So that, you know, the beyond just getting employees to do something, it's about now how do you set up the systems to make the managers accountable for making sure that they, the employees are doing the work? Because the employees are the critical part here. That's where the execution occurs. And all too often, what ends up happening is uh, in more mature firms, you end up with layers of management, which you know we could we could spend a whole podcast on the layers of management because they're, they're often there is the result of not of not having effective managerial leadership. We just keep adding and adding and adding. So we spend time helping organizations to identify their organizational pain that's getting in the way and interfering with them, and then how do you structure accordingly? But it starts, first of all, by defining the strategy. What do we want to be when we grow up? Strategy is one of those words that everybody uses, but very few people have a common definition of it. For us, strategy is what is it that the organization wants to be? And then a piece of that is then how do you structure the organization accordingly? And we use the science of stratified systems theory, work done by a fellow by the name of Elliot Jacks, who wrote The Requisite Organization and a variety of different books on stratified systems theory as the science behind how do you structure your organization. The science part is really about building an organization based on human capability because it is human beings that are going to do the work and that we're not all the same. We are all diverse in our, in our capability. And so what are the basic building blocks in stratified systems theory? Now I'm getting into far too much detail here, but stratified systems theory is about how many layers do I actually need? If I want to be this type of organization that is changing the world, then I need a certain number of layers based of human capability in order to do that. And so for the entrepreneur, when they're in startup mode, you know, the, uh, the book, um, the Pursuit of Prime by Adiz speaks to the nature of that, that curve of as organizations are growing and you start off and it's just go, go, go. Then you have to start putting systems in place as you get further along. And so it's about what is the right amount there? And that's where the science piece comes in. So I guess that's kind of the definition. But our focus is on the managers. So just one question, final question on this topic, the stratified systems theory, that's definitely very intriguing. 
and you say that organization based on human capability and there you need multiple layers because there's just so many people. I guess it's the span of control. Is it the span of control? No, it's it's not span of control. And this is where this is where a lot of businesses have uh, have tended to focus because it's an easy one to measure. So human capability is made up of four things. One is skills and knowledge, right? So we have a set of experience, we've got our skills and knowledge. The next is our attitude and our motivation. Do we actually value the work? So those are the first two. And those are the two that most organizations look at when they look at human capability. Another one that is that is going to define whether I can apply my capability is, am I able to behave reasonably? So when I'm under stress and pressure, it's okay to lose your temper every now and again, but if you can't keep it under control, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And the last one is the governor of it all, and that is cognitive capacity. Do I have the cognitive capacity to conceptualize the work that needs to be done? And that's where stratified systems theory comes into play. It's based in the early works of around Piaget's work around the development of children, but it's about how we develop in our cognitive capacity and that our cognitive capacity matures over time, but it's about recognizing that the things that I did when I was 20, I couldn't do the things that I can do now that I'm 60 because I can conceptualize things. I can work in ambiguity. I can, I can do those those constructs. And so it's about recognizing what are the levels of cognitive capacity that we need in the organization. And then once you've decided that, then making sure that you have the right people in the right role. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, EOS says, gets it, wants it, has the capacity to do it, and gets it stands in for cognitive capacity, actually, it, it sounds like. So do they do they get it? Can they conceptualize the job? Uh, once it is the motivation and uh, capacity to do it is the skills and knowledge. Right. Capacity. Now the behavior, I guess that's the other facet of it. It's it's the core values and how where they they fit the culture, the the behaviors that are expected to be exhibited in the culture. Yeah. Well, will they value them? Right, because I may not value that, and so that that fits into the attitude and motivation to actually value where this company is going. But the difference between cognitive capacity and skills and knowledge is skills and knowledge we accumulate; we're either born with it or it can be injected into us. You can train someone. Cognitive capacity matures over time, and that some people, like the Mozarts of the world, can write a concerto at at age nine. I still at 60 can't do that. Some of us have a greater degree of cognitive capacity at our earlier ages and that it matures much faster. And then others don't necessarily mature as quickly. Well, they mature on a standard rate, but if they've started at a lower level, it may take them longer. So not everyone can be president of the corporation. Got it. Not everyone can handle that, has the cognitive capacity to handle that sort of complexity. Yeah. which all flies in the face of small L liberal attitudes that everyone can be anything they want to be, that there is a governor on us. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess if they do everything that is required to get to that point, they practice more, they learn more, then maybe they can get, get there, but not probably not everyone. The premise is, is that you can't actually change someone's cognitive capacity externally. It just matures. So it's about identifying whether that person has the right cognitive capacity for that role, because it's very unfair to put someone into a role just because they want to be a vice president. It's very unfair to put them in that role and expect them to deliver on that role 
we've all seen it. It's, you know, it's the present, you know, it's a, a version of the Peter principle, right? So someone who's doing a brilliant job right now, when we promote them up and things start to fall apart, we think that it's a skills and knowledge thing. So we coach them, we train them. And then what we begin to see is, is that they become disaffected. They become disengaged with the work. And that's because they can't figure out how to do it. So it's about helping managers to be much more effective at recognizing people's cognitive capacity and making sure you're not putting someone into, you know, throwing them into the deep end. Or the analogy that I draw is you put them into a sandbox, a sandbox that is big enough for them that they can maneuver around in, but you don't want them in a little tiny sandbox where they're cramped in, and you don't want to put them in the Sahara where it's just there's no boundaries and they just can't figure out where to go and what to do. So you have to give them room to grow, but you cannot uh, overwhelm them, basically. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. So our time is close to the end, but I, I want to talk about your book, The Manager, Manager Readership Journey. And my question is, what is the premise of your book? Why did you write it? And what it is trying to achieve? Well, I think one, you know, there are three things that are core to the book. One is the idea of a professional managerial leadership core, that we need to become professional in our managerial leadership. It is the one skill set that it doesn't matter whether you're in public sector, private sector, anything. It is the one common thing. But we don't take it as a profession. We see it as an add-on to my technical know-how. The other is uh, the element managers as managers or managers of managers. So, so the fact that we have to focus on managers, teaching our managers, growing our managers, growing our leaders as distinct from growing employees. And then the third one is, is that it's a journey. Uh, I've made all the mistakes uh, known unto, uh, unto man or beast in my career, and it's a journey. It's about learning from it. It's about continuous improvement. And that perfection, while it may be valuable, is always outside of our grasp, and that we just have to continue on this journey and learn as we go along. Yeah, so, hence the managerial leadership journey. So, it's progress, not perfection, right? Right, exactly. Perfect way to describe it. And we need to think of it as a journey and that we're continually improving ourselves as we go along. And, and it's not a one and done thing. It's not, okay, I'm going to inject this into my organization. So I have to be disciplined. So back to your very first question. The military taught me one thing, and that was personal discipline and that stick to itiveness. And we've lost that. Mm -hmm. And so just be disciplined on your journey and realize that it is a journey and that it's it's about getting to an end state eventually, but it's that journey. Awesome. So some really great ideas. So you have to be a leader of, you have to lead leaders, you have to manage managers. Technical knowledge is probably important, but not enough, not sufficient. And then what we talked about in the second part of the organization is how do you build uh, an organization that is able to grow, where People have the cognitive capacity to grow into their role. They are motivated. They've got the skills, human capability, and the organization that ties it all together. So if our listeners would like to learn more about you, I mean, definitely, uh, I recommend you check out the Manager Leadership Journey on, on Amazon, which has only five-star reviews. 
And where else can they connect to Forrest and Company and yourself? Well, we have a website for the book that has elements of the book that are downloadable because there's worksheets in there. There's things for people to reflect on their journey. So it's managerialleadershipjourney.com. And then Forrest and Co. Forrest is in the trees, but with two R's. Andco.com is, is the website of our business. So those are the best places to find us. Okay, well, fantastic. So, so Julian Chapman, the president of First and Company, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, listeners, be sure to visit mbppod.com. So MBP Management Blueprint, mbppod.com for show notes and the full transcript of this and other episodes. And if you like a custom operating system that takes your business to the top of the mountain, then visit stevepreda.com. So thank you for your attention. Thanks again, Julian. Thank you, Steve. Have a great day. All the best. Cheers.